You are now listening to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 70 of What the Health. I'm your host, Lena Lahire, and today I am joined by Hamid Jabbar, also known as the Mineral Shaman. Hamid spent the better part of his adult life exploring Eastern philosophical and practical systems of Western medicine, yoga, Ayurveda, Buddhism, Thai bodywork, Japanese energy work, Amazonian plant medicines, and other traditional healing methods. Prior to his 15 years of working in the healing arts, Hamid was a successful lawyer in Los Angeles before moving to Arizona to reconnect with himself and his true passion of helping others. When he's not advising clients on their health and educating on many expansive topics of health, Hamid focuses his work on the use of sound and plant medicines in meditation, yoga, and transcendent experiences. Hamid is the voice behind At Mineral Shaman on IG, a platform discussing the intersection of mineral balancing, plant medicines, spirituality, and ancestral wisdom. I absolutely loved having Hamid on the show, and I know you guys are going to get so much out of this episode. We talk all about minerals, what minerals are, what they do inside the body, the things that deplete them, the things that we can do to help rebalance them, and why minerals are the missing key to ultimate health. So with all that being said, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the show, Hamid. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I would love for you to explain how you got to where you are right now. Tell our audience a little bit of background because you have a really interesting, like you've worked in some really interesting areas. So I'd love to know um, how you started and how you got to where you are now. But this is going to take three hours then, so I hope you're prepared. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Um, my whole life, I've been interested in anything that is related to health and also consciousness. And I'm into everything. That's one of my deficiencies in life is that I can't focus. And I so I went to music school and I, I learned how to really dive into working with sound Um, In my teenage years, I really got involved with diet and trying to heal some things that I had going on with diet. And it was just, it's just a way of breaking paradigms. I think I was one of the first people that I know, everybody thought I was crazy that, that started to question the food pyramid and that we have in the United States. I don't know if, if you all have it, but it's, uh, it's just kind of, it's now nobody relies on it, but it was one of these things that they taught us in school. And so I I took a journey into music, which was just a way to go to college because I was so um, I was so good at guitar. I got a music scholarship from there. I became a lawyer and I exercised the entire left side of my brain. So I went from like real creative to really analytical. And during that process, I lost touch with my body a lot because I was studying for seven years and my health started to get even worse. And that was when I really got into alternative um, practices like yoga, meditation, Ayurvedic um, considerations for diet, 
and I started to teach as well. So I was a part-time lawyer and then teaching yoga and meditation and then diving deep into my, my other interests, which then became body work and old Thai medicine, going to Thailand a lot. And then I was introduced to plant medicines in this process. So that I'm spending time in the Amazon rainforest and um, diving into some of the traditions of the Andes mountains with plant medicines. And then what else am I missing? Um, some, somehow in all of this, I got, I got, I got interested in minerals and, um, that was kind of like a final piece for me and figuring out what was going on with my body was once I figured out that I had, I had a good intuition that my body knew how to heal itself. And a lot of the alternative health world understands that I think, but so many of the things that I was doing that I thought were healthy were not, they were actually depleting me of my minerals. And once I realized that I just have to get my body rebuilt from a mineral level, then a lot of the health things that I was dealing with just kind of went away. And I trained under Morley Robbins program. He's got the root cause protocol. And when I got that lens from Morley, I realized that a lot of what I was encountering in the plant medicine world, and when I say plant medicines, I'm talking, you know, ay ayahuasca, wachuma, the psychedelic plant medicine world, that people seeking out the medicines, actually, a lot of them were just suffering from mineral deficiencies like me. And that's why they, they were having difficulty healing conditions or um, even on the psychological, emotional level, a lot of what we see is actually a symptom of mineral dysregulation. So when I started to put these two things together, um, that's what I've been doing the last year basically is, is really trying to unravel some of the dogma around plant medicine work and see how can I better support people who are going down that path and how can I educate people that are facilitators? A lot of the people I'm working with are facilitators, either psychotherapists or the more um, shamanic type facilitators. How can I help them uh, make sure that the people that they're working with are not getting worse. And um, so that's where I'm at now. And I'm just researching and learning more every day and talking to wonderful people like you about it. That's amazing. So I'm curious, what kind of things were you experiencing? Like what kind of symptoms um, and how did you go about addressing them with minerals? Actually back that up for our audience. What are minerals and what do they do in our body? Yeah, I think a lot of people think of minerals as um, just things that are nice to have. Like we, we know about like mineral water and then we think about vitamins, but our body is made up of um, substances. So we're physical, you can touch us and you can think that everything that came into our body is actually coming from the earth. We're not separate, you know, our, our body is constantly rebuilding itself and it rebuilds itself with proteins and, and small molecules. And those molecules are, are based on all the minerals that exist on our planet. Now, there's a few key minerals that run a lot of the bio processes within us. Um, one of them is magnesium. Um, another one would be calcium. Then you have minerals that are actually metal, like copper and iron. And what happens is that these minerals have to be um, combined within our enzymes, certain enzymes in order to work. And those enzymes use the minerals in very interesting ways to manage electricity, to work with light and to, to basically keep us alive. 
So when we're getting down to what is the basis of our life, what is the basis of our body, we're made up of minerals. And so a lot of what happens in the, the health world is that people focus on downstream things like hormones, or they focus on like the organ systems, like the liver and the kidney, but all of those things are downstream, you know, and upstream, we get to the very basis of our life is probably in the cells, the mitochondria and how they make energy, how they make energy and how they clear exhaust when they've made the energy. And all of that is mineral dependent. So it's not to say that we can't look at it from the lenses, but when you, when I use the term mineral, I'm looking at it from a different lens. I'm looking, how can we get to the very core of what's happening in the body? And then the downstream effects aren't so that, they're not that important, which is why Morley Robbins calls his protocol the root cause protocol, because it's, it basically works with everything, you know, no matter what your symptoms are, it starts at the mitochondrial level. So if in a, in a shorthand way, you can think of minerals as like the periodic table of elements. Mm. If anybody remembers that from school, that's what they are. Yeah. So what kind of symptoms were you experiencing that was down to a mineral imbalance? Yeah, my symptoms, I, I had this weird progression over the course of three years where I had symptoms that would come and then it would change. And then I thought that something went away and something new came. So it was, it was like 10 different things. It started with just rapid weight gain within a month. When this fall started, I gained like 20 pounds in one month, nothing changed. My diet didn't change. I, I don't, I couldn't correlate that with anything. It was very, very interesting. And then I started to have all kinds of weird hormonal things that I didn't know were hormonal, but my estrogen started to rise. And as a man that comes with weight gain, but it also came with various things involving my eyes, like my vision. Um, and then I started to have breathing issues, like asthma started to happen out of nowhere and sinus issues, my sinuses. And I lost my taste of uh, my sense of smell and taste, which was interesting because I, I lost it for a very long time before most pe people were talking about this. And then I started to say, oh, everybody's losing their sense of smell and taste now. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> and um, by the time that I found the mineral component, I had basically resolved almost everything just based on changing my diet and mostly removing things. I was very restrictive, which wasn't a good thing, but it was a way to avoid inflammation. But I still had lingering symptoms, mainly the weight gain, the estrogen issues. If you have estrogen in your body, you cannot lose weight. I mean, for a man, we don't need very much. So my estrogen levels are very high and I couldn't lose weight. I would gain weight in areas that men don't want to gain weight in. That also comes with hair loss, you know, male pattern baldness and um, still had some sinus issues. So those were the issues that really helped tell me that, it, you know, I had, my diet was so good. There's something else going on. I couldn't mm -hmm. figure out what it was. And when I started to work the root cause protocol to put back minerals, and then I started to do lab testing, I saw that I was extremely copper deficient and magnesium deficient. And once I started to put those key minerals back in, then my body was able to heal on its own. I, it, it, didn't, it didn't require any specific effort. I also had heavy metal issues. 
So I was dealing with mercury and lead, which a lot of people I think are dealing with. But once I started to remineralize my body, my body just started to get rid of those without any kind of extra therapy. Interesting. So, you know, I guess what a lot of people want is there, they might be listening and think, oh, that, that sounds like me, or I have some issues. What do I take? And it's not as simple as that, is it? Because you can go and take a lot of, you know, synthetic minerals like iron or zinc or all these other things, but it could be causing more damage than good and causing greater imbalance. Could you speak to that? I think that's one of the the biggest education pieces for people is is just this allopathic approach where there's a pill to fix us, (laughs) whether it's a prescription or whether it's a supplement. And I understand the desire because everybody wants to heal yesterday (laughs) and nobody wants to go through the process, but there's, there's a balance within the body that's really delicate. Now, I, I didn't realize how delicate our balance was until I started working with minerals. And then it started to occur to me that sometimes like you're given a, I don't take prescriptions, but back in the day when I would get a prescription drug, you look at the dosage and it's like half a milligram or it's tiny amounts, tiny amounts of these substances have massive effects within the body. So that tells us one thing, which is that our body is really sensitive. And then I think people think I'm minerally deficient. Let me just take a mineral and put it in. When we do that, we end up disrupting the balance that the body was in. And it, it, the body has to adjust to whatever you gave it. So when we're working to bring minerals into the body, we actually have to be careful because there's certain things that can happen. Like if you take magnesium, you just take it, the body needs it. We're all magnesium deficient but that will cause your body to excrete sodium and potassium. And then if you end up getting rid of sodium potassium, it releases stress hormones that cause the loss of magnesium. So by taking magnesium, ironically, you can actually end up more magnesium deficient if you're not supporting the adrenals. And then you mentioned some minerals like iron. These are problematic minerals in our body when they're in excess. And, and I think this goes to a bigger story that a lot of people aren't aware of, which is that they've been putting iron filings in the food, you know, since the 1930s and forties, at least in the United States, now it's pretty much worldwide. And this came from a weird belief that somehow iron is, is something we need to eat in order to have strong blood, you know, and (laughs) the fact of the matter is that everything we eat already has iron in it because the earth is its number one element is iron. So it's in the food already. And the, the weird thing is that there has a paradigm, a paradigm developed around this, which was about iron deficiency. And so doctors now are trained that if you are low in iron in your blood, that means you're iron deficient, but usually it's exactly the opposite. It's the people that are low in iron in the blood that have too much iron everywhere else. So it's just a, a different way of looking at it. The way that we practice is to try to bring the iron from everywhere else and get it back into the blood where it's supposed to be, where it can be helpful. And so I, that's the number one question I get from people. It's like, what supplement can I take? What mineral can I take? How do I, and um, 
I, I really just try to point people towards some protocols, like the root cause protocol is the one that I practice and that I use. And the nice thing about a protocol like that is that it's gentle, it's slow, and it provides the balance that's required. And, and so I wouldn't just run out and take a magnesium supplement thinking that that's going to be the answer. Um, it could be, but it has to be combined with, with other things to help keep the magnesium where it's supposed to be. And yeah, I, I, we can go forever on, on that, but if you, if you have specific minerals you want to talk about, maybe it's better to do that. <laughs> well, so how did you go about testing? You, you said you did some lab testing. Did you do like hair and tissue mineral analysis? What were the specific labs? Because a lot of people are like, well, I've gotten labs, i.e. Mm -hmm. blood work, and they all come back normal. But A, we're only looking at iron from a blood level, not a tissue level. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other minerals that aren't even taken into account in blood work. And sometimes blood work just isn't the most accurate representation of what's really going on in our body. So what are some specific lab tests and what are, what are we looking for when we're talking about minerals? Yeah. Well, I was, because the, the framework that I use is the root cause protocol framework. We use something called the full Monty, which is a blood panel. It has all of the iron tests, ferritin, transferrin, uh, TIBC, it has serum iron, it has hemoglobin, and it has, these are things that most doctors will run one of those. They're not going to run all of them mm -hmm. when they're trying to determine whether you have too much or too little iron, which is a really elementary way of looking at it, too much or too little, because actually all of those things help paint a picture of where iron is in the body. Then we use copper, which is you have to know that like when they develop these standards on the labs, what they're doing is that they, they look at the population of people that took the test and they develop a reference range. And they said, well, all these people that took this test, they weren't dying basically. So they must've been in a healthy range. <laughs> and so the labs then report, oh, you're normal. It's like, yeah, but 90% of the people are not well. And so those reference ranges are kind of meaningless for us. We have our own reference ranges that we look at. And more importantly, we look at ratios. Like one of the key things that doctors are testing is like vitamin D, but then they don't test vitamin A, which is retinol. And so the ratio between vitamin D and vitamin A is much more important than the level of vitamin D. And we're looking for a specific ratio there. And there's, there's interesting problems with the lab tests. Like you point out, for instance, a lot of doctors, people will bring me their lab tests sometimes. They're like, I got my magnesium tested and here, and they give it to me and it's serum magnesium, which is a representation of what their magnesium was at that point in time, which is totally useless. All it is is saying you weren't dying at that moment that they took your blood. And so we use MAG-RBC, which is the measure of magnesium in your red blood cells, because red blood cells, they'll live for <clears throat> months. So it's like a better measure of where your magnesium status is, <clears throat> excuse me, in a long term. And then we also use hair mineral testing. The, the key with these things is to understand it's not, at, it's not simply just looking at the levels you have to know like magnesium, for instance, it's an intracellular 
mineral. It's not supposed to really be in our hair. So if you see a lot of it in the hair, people go, yeah, I got a lot of magnesium in my hair. That's a good thing. I'm like, well, <laughs> why is it in your hair? That's a sign of stress. The body's not holding on to the magnesium and it's depositing it in the hair. And so the way that we look at it isn't simply to follow what the lab gives us, but there's another lens to it. But yes, hair mineral testing is one thing that I use. And then the full Monty iron panel, we call it, which is copper, zinc, vitamin A, vitamin D, and then all of the iron things, you know, TIBC, iron saturation, ferritin, transferrin, hemoglobin, serum iron. Yeah. Because there's so many people that are taking iron because they're like, well, I have an iron, iron deficiency. I'm anemic. And it's like, well, what do you, so, I know that they're wrong, but that's why I wanted to get you on here. Cause I'm like, yeah. but you're not necessarily iron deficient because there's iron everywhere. Yeah. So what most doctors do is that they'll test ferritin nowadays, since the 1970s. Ferritin is an iron carrying protein. Its job is to take iron typically from old red blood cells that died. And it has to transport it into various places where it can get recycled. When ferritin is measured in the blood, the problem is that that protein doesn't have any iron in it. And the studies about this came out in the 70s, yet doctors still don't understand this. So they'll measure ferritin and they'll say, your ferritin was below 100, which is the reference range in the US that we use. And if you're below 100, they're gonna say you're anemic, you need more iron. Well, the ferritin in the blood doesn't have any iron in it. If it's in the blood also, this is a problem because in a perfectly functioning body, there probably should be no ferritin in the blood. What it means is that, ferret, that the iron was deposited somewhere in the tissues and the ferritin is like <clears throat> just circulating now in the blood. It's a sign of iron dysregulation. So we don't wanna see ferritin really high. I kind of look at it the opposite of the doctors. They're like, oh, high ferritin, good. I'm like, high ferritin, no, we need to lower that. And the other measure that used to be used was hemoglobin uh, to diagnose anemia. And hemoglobin is probably a better measure to see whether you have adequate iron in your blood. I think most people know about hemoglobin because it's, if you want to give blood, that's what they would test. And the issue with iron is so complex. Basically iron is, it's useless without a chaperone. It needs something to manage it. The analogy that I like best is the analogy of the skyscrapers, which are made of iron beams, metal beams. And what doctors think is that somehow those metal beams are just thrown at a construction site and build themselves into a skyscraper. And that's the, what they do is they just give iron to people and they think that somehow that iron is gonna get made into red blood cells. But the system that makes red blood cells is the most complicated system in the human body. And it requires so many steps. Basically our red blood cells, they circulate for a couple months and then they die and they're eaten by macrophages who take them to the spleen. From there, they have to go to the liver. The liver then has to send them into the bone marrow through openings in our bones. And the bone marrow has to make <laughs> new red blood cells using iron that was recycled. So this doesn't make sense. If you take 
iron orally, how in one day does that raise your iron? Because it takes forever to make new red blood cells like that. <clears throat> and doctors are not trained on this. They just know that the effect is there because it does work. If you give somebody iron, oh, they'll feel better. They'll feel more energetic. But what's really happening is that the body thinks it's been poisoned. So when you give somebody iron, there's a reserve of red blood cells that are usually held in your spleen for an emergency, <laughs> for a time when you're sick. And so by giving your body iron, the body kind of thinks, oh, I've been poisoned and it releases all those red blood cells. Then you look like the iron did something helpful, but it didn't. You could probably achieve the same thing by giving somebody another toxic metal, you poisoning them in another way. And so then all the iron that you've taken is now actually just deposited somewhere else in the body. And that's why people become dependent on taking iron because it doesn't actually solve the problem. And the other issue is that iron is persistent. It, we don't lose it. So every milligram of iron we take in our life is still there. And for women, they have a monthly blood loss. They lose some men, unless we were bleeding constantly, we don't lose the iron. So it just builds up. And the key is that we need to, we need to have a chaperone, like I said, but we need an architect to build the building. We need somebody that understands how to take that metal and create the skyscraper. And that's copper and that's retinol. And these are the two things that doctors don't usually recommend people take. And so the way from, you know, I've been working with people now doing this for a year and I've had people that they're so afraid to stop taking iron. They think they're going to die. And when they stop taking it, I just talked to somebody now, it's been a year since she's been working with me and she stopped. She hasn't taken iron in a year. She has more energy and almost all of her symptoms are gone of the Lyme disease, the, you name it, the chronic fatigue. And she, she can't believe it. I mean, it's sort of, it's actually, it's hard to believe because people want to believe that their doctors know best. And in this case, they don't usually. In a lot of cases, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately. Yeah. And so that's, that's like a simplified version of the iron issue, but basically everybody's iron toxic. <clears throat> there may be a few people in this world who actually have been bleeding for a long time. There's some women that have had hemorrhages for years. I've, I know one who mm -hmm. bled for like six years, basically continuously. She might be one of the few people that's truly iron deficient, but most people are not truly iron deficient. It's just not where it needs to be. The iron's just out of place. Interesting. So what happens when there's this imbalance of copper to iron? What are some of the symptoms that people will have? Everything. <laughs> Everything is caused by this. The, the thing is iron, iron is what causes disease. Um, I think if you look at the medical literature, they pretty much admit this because what they'll say is that oxidative stress is the cause of all disease and aging. And oxidative stress means there was an accident with oxygen. We think that oxygen is this beneficial thing. Everyone's like, oxygen is great. But a few billion years ago, there was no oxygen on this planet. 
um, and it wasn't until I think the phytoplankton of the ocean started to make it that it appeared in the atmosphere and 99 plus percent of all life died during that period because oxygen interacts with iron and we live on a planet with a lot of iron and it creates rust and rust is the anti-life it's not beneficial for for living things to to rust so every every piece every life form that survived that event has developed strategies to deal with oxygen and we use iron to deal with oxygen but when the iron is not um, in the proper places, then it just rusts in our body and creates disease. So the symptoms you would get would be everything ending with an itis, <laughs> arthritis, rhinitis. Inflammation. Inflammation, because iron in the cells, um, it, it, it signals the cell that there's a problem, that there's, there's an issue, and that triggers an inflammatory cascade. And, and it just depends on where your iron is as to where your quote unquote disease will appear. If it's in your eyes, your vision will go. Um, if it's in your lungs, you'll have breathing issues. If it's in your liver, you're not going to be able to detox. You're going to have all the symptoms that go with not being able to detox skin issues, um, sleep issues. And, and so the labels of disease, this is kind of one of the, the weird psychological things that happens with people is that they get a diagnosis and they believe that that is an actual thing, but it's a concept. It's a concept that is developed to give a name to something, but what they really have is just symptoms. And a lot of it, it, it comes from the practice of medicine that involves prescriptions. You know, you have to have a diagnosis so that we can look in the book or the doctors can look in the book and figure out what medication to give you. Okay. And so I don't really believe anymore in names of diseases. I, I think that they're all just symptoms of underlying uh, metabolic issues, but I can tell you that the, the, the types of things that I see are very common. It's like everybody has the same kinds of things happening. Digestive issues, they have skin issues. A lot of people are having um, Epstein-Barr. They, they all come with the same thing. Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, chronic fatigue syndrome, and they all come together. It's like, why does everybody have the same things? Mm -hmm. These are these are just examples of the body not being able to make energy and clear the exhaust to to get rid of the waste products. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so I look at it that way. Everything is is caused by this at the root cause. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally on board with that too. And you know, even how you mentioned diseases. I mean, they're socially constructed and how we think of them and and interact with them. And those constructions are changing as we gain more knowledge, but I'm very much um, on the same page as you is like, what's the underlying issue to these symptoms? Because you can get this diagnosis that you end up identifying with. And this is something we learn a lot about in psychology and why I think it's so detrimental to give someone a diagnosis. It can be helpful, but at the same time, what does it do? Like, is the diagnosis changing anything or is that person just 
living with this diagnosis now and not really addressing what's going on because no one really knows what's going on. I think the diagnosis becomes a part of the problem. Yes. In the work that we do, you know, people like me that are trying to help people is we have to get people to get away from their diagnosis mentally and on the subconscious level, because after a few years of dealing with something, a subconscious belief starts to form that the body is broken. Mm. People that have had symptoms for a long time, they'll start to think that my body is broken. And then that actually becomes one of the biggest obstacles to healing. And our bodies do respond to our beliefs. So you mentioned, I, you know, giving people a label. I think it's very unethical. Yeah. Of course, I look at it from a different standpoint is that I want people to heal. And I, I know the medical system claims to want that, but then why would you give somebody a label that becomes an internal um, subconscious belief pattern? Self-fulfilling prophecy. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It's a, it's an issue and people have to get away from these labels. If they want to heal, they have to understand that the body isn't broken. Everything is, is, everything can really be healed. The body can heal almost everything, you know, but it has to be given the right environment. It has to be given not just the physical environment, but the energetic and emotional environment, because the emotions play a big part in our healing as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very complex thing. You know, if we want to heal from conditions, we can't just go and take a pill. It just, it doesn't usually do it. Mm-hmm. On the physical level, and we will get to the emotional and spiritual level because I also agree it has to be a holistic situation happening. Um, if people, you know, they're listening to this and they're like, oh man, I got to do something about iron and like, what kind of foods are supportive for balancing your minerals? And then we'll get to lifestyle practices because I know they play a role as well. But uh, if purely looking at the physical, what are some of the things that deplete our minerals and what can help rebalance them? There's, there's quite a few things that people do that deplete minerals. A lot of it is, is taking certain supplements that are out there. Basically, if they sell it at, we have this store called Costco here, you know? Yeah, we do too. If they sell it at Costco, it's probably something that's depleting your minerals, (laughs) despite what you think, (laughs) you know, all the synthetic vitamins, there's there's subtle things too, like the water that we bathe in, you know, chlorine, fluoride, these things strip our bodies of minerals. Um, so the first thing that people have to realize is just get a little bit of an education on, on what are the things that are causing mineral loss. The other thing that is the biggest cause of mineral loss is just stress, stress hormones running through our body. And those can be triggered from lifestyle but they can also be triggered from actually the inflammation itself that is caused by iron. So it can become a feedback loop. But when it comes to diet, I'm, I'm pretty much now in the place where I just recommend people really look at their ancestry and try to eat an ancestral diet. I think everybody's gotten to the point where you realize there's, there's a hundred thousand books on what to eat, you know, (laughs) and everybody's going to give you their philosophy. Yet our grandparents and our great-grandparents, they didn't have a single book on what to eat. 
Um, they ate the foods that Mother Nature provided, and they ate them. Well, of course, it's different now because the soil's been depleted, but they ate whole foods and they ate foods that were part of where they grew up, where their, their lineage is. And I, I'm a big fan of looking at the, the mother's side of the family to look to the grandparents and the great grandparents on the mother's side, because we have two types of DNA in our body. We have mitochondrial DNA, which pretty much comes from the mom. I mean, there's, there's some evidence that it might not, but I think those studies are actually confusing the fact that there was inbreeding and that's a whole different discussion, but most of it's just coming from our mom and the mitochondria are what makes energy and has to take the food products. Essentially we, we eat this, at least the, once it's broken down into the fundamental elements and has to make energy. So there's certain things that I found that like, for instance, I used to love bananas. I was, I would eat bananas all the time and I loved avocados and I was like into coconut oil. And I started to realize like, well, these are all supposed to be really good for me, but why are they not working for me? It must be me. I must be broken. Then I, in the last year, I've really been diving into just my, my mother's side, which is Hungarian and my grandma, you know, the types of foods that she would eat, I, I just had moved away from. They just didn't seem healthy. You know, it's like Hungarian food from 1950. Like who eats that? Eating potatoes and yeah, potatoes. I was, I was told don't eat potatoes. They're, they're filled with all kinds of things. My body actually loves potatoes Me too. and it responds good, well to potatoes. Yeah. And my grandma lived to 92, 90, yeah. 92 or 93. And I think about it and I, and I realize like my body's looking for the foods that my, my great grandma, my grandma ate. Mm. And the more I stick with that, the better I feel. Now, a lot of those foods people have just culturally we've moved away from. It's like butter and heavy cream and, and liver. These things that were in my family line I just, you know, I turn up my nose, like liver, no, like I, I can't handle liver, but my body feels really good when I have it, you know, mm -hmm. sort of just relearning some of the ancestral foods. Those foods tend to be really rich in the things we need, which are retinol, copper, and all of the, the vitamins that people are trying to take synthetic vitamins would just get it in your foods. The bioavailable iron. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting that you said that with like bananas, avocados, coconut. Uh, I love coconut. I notice that I don't feel my best when I have it. But like, how do you make a, a Thai red curry without coconut? You just can't. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but avocados and bananas hurt my stomach so bad. Um, and I, I'm like close to your ancestry. I'm German, German, Russian. Dutch. I know it's not, not exactly the same, but we ate a lot of the same foods, right? Like the meat, potatoes, cream, um, all of those things. And I went dairy free for the longest time, like deathly afraid to eat dairy. And I remember like, I never had all these stomach issues that I had later on in life when I was like, I used to eat butter out of the jar. My mom said, like, I just eat it out of the jar, like full butter and then everything became like um, 
well, A, it was margarine way back, but then it became coconut oil and avocado oil. And I still like avocado oil, but I do feel really good when I just eat some like red meat, potatoes and butter. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I had to go through this too because I'm mixed. So my dad is Middle Eastern, mm. he's from Iran and all their foods are different. And it's not that I don't like those foods. Like I love Thai food. I love, I love the taste of avocados, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I realized like these can't be staples in my diet. My body needs just certain things. And it, I, that's what I encourage people to really look at. Now, some people come back to me and they're like, well, my grandma just ate bologna and white bread. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you also got to think also that the the white bread and the bologna was different back then, but it, it probably is a, isn't the best, best thing you want to eat now. But you know, there's, there's certain issues with that philosophy I run into when people tell me things like that, but for sure. But yeah, I think more of an ancestral diet tends to be richer in nutrients and mm -hmm. people will feel better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what is, what is your rebuttal when someone's like, well, ancestral eating, you shouldn't be eating any dairy, any grains because, you know, our paleolithic ancestors wouldn't have eaten those. What, what do you say to that? Yeah. Well, I will tell you, like when I was 14 or 15, I had adopted this paleo diet because that resonated with me, that concept that we evolved eating those foods and what they'll say in these kinds of movements, whether it's paleo carnivore, is that evolution is so slow that 10,000 years ago when agriculture was developed, we haven't had enough time to evolve to handle those foods. And that is where I think the crux of their argument falls apart, because it's based on the concept of genetics that, that doesn't take into account epigenetic changes. So for instance, we know that in the womb, a mother is going to, um, she's going to pass along epigenetic changes to the baby. Now, let's say she's having a daughter. The daughter is going to have all of the eggs in her formed in the, in the, in the mother. So really like I was alive in my grandmother's womb, at least part of me as an egg. Oh, that's right? crazy. That's, that's crazy to very, think of. Yeah. And because See, epigenetics is fast. It doesn't mean it's a permanent change. What happens usually is that an epigenetic change is testing out to see whether this change should become permanent. And it's often made into the mitochondrial DNA, which is coming from our mother. And what it's saying is like, just from my example, my great, my grandmother, the Hungarian grandmother, she had just come out of the Holocaust she had went to medical school. She was Jewish, living in a country that didn't allow Jews. There was a lot of stress and she was eating a very specific diet. So her body created my mom and created me within my mom, the egg that became me. And it programmed into that some testing changes. See, these, these might be helpful for the next generation because of the stresses that she was under. And those aren't necessarily part of the the genome that's in the nucleus of the cell might just be in the mitochondria. We know though, but this is more complex that sometimes changes in the mitochondrial DNA will make it into 
the genome through, through various processes and then get passed down more permanently. So my rebuttal is that the paleo movement has a good idea. It's true that those foods are probably more compatible. If you're just trying to pick what foods are going to be compatible, it's probably true that the paleolithic diet pre-grains, pre-dairy is compatible. But I view it more like an elimination diet now because some of us have lineages that did evolve after that to be able to handle certain things like dairy, like grains. And so I don't think it's as blanket of a statement. There may still be people on this earth that cannot handle dairy and grains just because they don't have the epigenetic changes that came. So I don't wanna tell everybody like, go out and eat bread because it's fine, you evolve. I don't know. Um, you really have to test these things out. And I think a lot of it is, is that the food is just different now. Mm -hmm. Like in the last hundred years, the bread is different. <laughs> the, the grains are different. The dairy is pasteurized. It's not raw. You know, mm -hmm. the, the cows are not eating the same things. So we sometimes just put a blanket. Oh, that's, it must be just because of that. But if our great grandparents ate it and didn't have an issue, why are we having an issue? That's the question I have. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. And I mean, yeah, I think, I think the statistic is 70% of the world's population does not have lactase persistence, but not all dairy has lactose in it. Right. Yeah. So like cream doesn't have a ton of lactose, lots of cheese doesn't have a ton of lactose. Um, like you said, raw dairy digests much differently than pasteurized. And then one step up for homogenized dairy, which is like ultra processed. So what kind of dairy are you sensitive to? Is it all dairy or is it just some? Yes. And also the lack of the, the enzyme. Yeah. It, it could be a sign of a deficiency, a mineral deficiency. Then so we, we, we can sometimes say that like a certain percentage of people don't have it, but we don't know why they don't have it. Because mm. maybe it's just they don't make it because their diet um, is totally different. Mm -hmm. And so it's not good for them, but it's not that they couldn't make it mm -hmm. if we, if they change something. So I tend to think that we're kind of, we're more malleable than, than people sometimes think. Well, I think we, we have to be in order for us to even get to where we are now, we would have had to be able to adapt. I, I mean, people think we're these fragile beings, but we're actually quite robust and yeah. our ability to adapt is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. We're the most adaptable species on this planet. I mean, we live in every climate. Mm. You don't see that with, with other species. We eat such a wide diet. I mean, the people of the Amazon rainforest that I was with them, it's like their diet is so different than like the people of Germany or mm -hmm. you go to China. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we can eat different things. We're not all... It's not set in stone is what I'm saying. We, mm -hmm. we can change sort of. And I, and I figured this out for myself too, because like I said, I, I basically treat paleo, carnivore, these types of things now as an elimination diet. And it's a sign that we, we haven't really gotten to the root cause yet if we're too sensitive. Because I used to be too sensitive. I couldn't handle dairy. I couldn't handle bread, for instance. Um, and so now I can. 
And so I know that my body is capable of it, but I was, I was under too much stress. And so then those kinds of diets can be helpful if you're under stress, and, and, but it's not a place to reside forever. I don't think, at least for me. I agree. And I think, you know, too, I don't know if, if this is what you found. I know that when I started to incorporate and I still can't tolerate wheat right now, um, I'm, I'm working towards it because I want to be able to, you know, enjoy something like enjoy a piece of sourdough bread or, you know, like just um, eat, eat with a little bit more freedom when I go out. But when I started to incorporate dairy, I had to do it really slowly because I hadn't been consuming it like yourself for so long. And then of course, you're not going to feel good when you eat something that you haven't eaten for so long. It doesn't necessarily mean you're sensitive. It means your body is lacking the enzymes. Yes, exactly. So even taking something like a digestive enzyme, when you consume dairy or say you're vegan and you're starting to consume meat again, I mean, that could be a big game changer, couldn't it? Yeah. It's one of the biggest things that happens in the work that I do is I tell people, maybe they were vegan for 10 years, but now they're realizing they depleted themselves and they want to incorporate now just beef liver, just a little bit. And then all of a sudden they take it and they can't handle it. They can't digest it. Um, maybe they have a histamine reaction to it because the, these elimination type diets, which I think veganism is one too, it, it, our body just stops making all the things that it needed. Mm. And it does take some time to, to relearn, but I, digestive enzymes are a huge part of people's reintroduction of certain foods. I think yeah. just until the body can start to make its own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Digestive enzymes has been an absolute game changer for me personally. Cause I just got slapped with the diagnosis of IBS you know, over 10 years ago and just have had chronic issues. Um, and still am only now starting to resolve them, but I was pretty adamant that I wanted dairy back in my diet because you, you can't deny the pristine source of protein that it is right. Like it's, it's got all the amino acids. It's got calcium. It's got all these other minerals, vitamin A, vitamin K. Um, I think demonizing it is unhelpful. Yeah. Also for, for emotional health, because it's got the precursor molecules to make dopamine Mm. serotonin you know, the, the tryptophans and the, I can't remember all of them, but when I started incorporate dairy back into my diet, it's like, Oh, it's like a natural antidepressant. I yeah. just feel better. <laughs> yeah. But then you get some people are like, that's the case of morphines and right. Like you're like, okay, well you don't eat dairy then. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not for everybody, but, but yeah, I, I eat certain things and I'm, and I realized now it's actually part of what contributes to overall health, like Mm -hmm. mental health, emotional health, Mm -hmm. that the food does matter too. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's switch gears just for a bit and talk about the other things that deplete our minerals that are more emotional and spiritual. Like what kind of, what kind of things are we engaging in that can deplete our minerals that we might not be aware of? Well, anytime that I mentioned, anytime that we have a stress hormone being released, cortisol, aldosterone, adrenaline, uh, these, these actually just burn through minerals really fast. Mm. They're, they're what I would consider like false energy. Uh, they think of it like an internal drug we take. 
um, if people are functioning off of stress hormones, it, they have a sense of energy to them. You know, adrenaline for a lot of people feels good. Um, even a lot of people get a, a, addicted to the feeling of like the stress that comes with cortisol release. And so we're, these things are powering us. They're giving us energy, but they're not actually giving the type of energy that we need. They're not telling our mitochondria to make energy in a, in a more efficient way. Instead, they're just depleting us of magnesium and calcium, which are the, the two things that essentially go in and out to, to regulate cellular function. And so stress is the number one thing that I think people don't take into account. And stress isn't just my nine to five job or I have kids. Stress is every emotion that we experience that, that causes us an emotional response as well. So anytime we're, we're grieving, for instance, grieving burns through a lot of minerals and you can even see it in the tears. <laughs> the tears are filled with minerals really? um, on a physical level. The, there's activities like um, like intense exercise, you know, sweating, things like that will also burn through a lot of our minerals. Basically, you have to understand everything burns through minerals on some level. That's why we have to constantly replenish them. But some things are more intense than others. So what, what I do when I work with people is I often just ask them when their symptoms started, and then out of, you know, I'll try to ask them, well, what was happening in your life right before that? And usually, oh, well, my mom was in the hospital and I was taking care of her. Oh, we had a death in the family. I had moved across the country. My husband lost his job. And I, you know, there's always these stressors. And then a month later, two months later, somebody, you know, oh, some symptom appeared. And if you don't catch it early, that stress was the thing that caused this. And it, it's, it's a result of magnesium loss usually, which is the first mineral to leave. Then without noticing that stress was causing it, people start to have a cascade of more symptoms, more symptoms, and it just gets out of hand. Then it's hard to undo it. When people end up healing, it's almost like watching a movie in reverse. A lot of times the symptoms that they started with come back and you're kind of going backwards in the symptoms that happened to me. It was very interesting. It's almost like, wait, I had this symptom and then it went away on my healing journey. Then the symptom before that came back and then that went away. And then it's like going back in time in this real weird reverse order. And I think that has to do with the way that the minerals contribute with the enzymes. And as, as we start to get them back in, uh, um, the body's just putting them back in the order that we lost it, but reverse order. So there's, there's interesting things like that, that people might notice. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I can definitely pinpoint when all of my symptoms started. Um, and there was a death in the family and like, and trauma before that. So like symptoms sort of way, way, way earlier than that, but like lots of crazy symptoms. Um, and one of the biggest things that helped was meditating. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. like, like, and I went like every single test, every, you know, specialist I could think of, um, and everything was just normal. <laughs> <laughs> Normal is the nemesis for these oh, days. 
<laughs> it's like, it's not normal. Yeah. Right. That's really, really interesting. Um, so again, switching gears a little bit, cause I don't want to keep you for too much longer and I could just, you know, talk to you for hours. Um, I do want to pick your brain a little bit about plant medicines because okay. in the field of psychology, this is becoming more and more talked about. And I have some concerns, right? In Canada, we've legalized marijuana and, you know, whatever you think about legalization versus decriminalization, I'd, I do think the decriminalization was necessary, but they're trying to socialize it now. Um, I've been through a drug addiction uh, more than just marijuana. So when I see these things coming into the mainstream, I have red flags that come up and you've talked, you've talked about it from a mineral standpoint and what these things are doing to us on a mineral level and how we're interacting with them, maybe inauthentically from how we used to, or maybe their original intention. Could you speak to um, our use of psychedelics, marijuana for what they're doing to our body and what the original intent was? Yeah, for sure. It's an interesting, it's an interesting topic. Marijuana is one that I, in the United States too, it's pretty much legal. I, I, there's maybe a few states that, that haven't it's, I guess it, the, the reasons people are using it vary. The movement here to legalize cannabis came from the medical establishment using it for symptom management. I would say symptom management. And a lot of the arguments were that, oh, that helps people who are on chemotherapy. It, um, it helps with inflammation. It helps people sleep. People with arthritis, it might be anti-inflammatory. Um, and I think that was just the doorway to get it legalized. And mm -hmm. what really is that people are stressed. So it becomes something to use in times of stress to disconnect uh, from that stress, to dissociate from the body a little bit. And, and maybe socially, you know, just like alcohol is kind of a social drug, it, it helps take down barriers. So I don't want to say there's no benefits. These are all the benefits that people talk about. Cannabis in particular comes with some consequences too. You know, a lot of it is just consequences to our behavior. People that engage with that plant a lot, um, they may become reliant on it or they think they're reliant on it for, for creativity or it, it can sort of hijack our own sense of self as to, you know, uh, you know, I had this great insight or people tell me all the time that they're, they're using cannabis and they're getting the best insights of their life and they're using it as a medicine. And then I'll ask them, well, can you explain to me the insight? Well, I can't now, but like you, it only makes sense when you're high. It doesn't make sense outside of that context. And so it's like, I, I understood the universe, no, I can't explain it to you now. <laughs> so then I think, well, that doesn't really help. And, and then there's just stepping back a moment, you know, all the benefits from the medical perspective, anti-inflammatory and helping with sleep. These are, these are symptom management. And so for me, it's not, it's not the way I would prefer to help people. I'd rather help get rid of the inflammation by figuring out what's causing the inflammation. 
what's causing you not to be able to sleep and then and then try to get it from the root that's not to pick on cannabis in particular but i don't think it's truly a medicine that's helping people to heal i think it's become just symptom relief and and i don't i don't personally and from the practice perspective that i work with i i'm not opposed to eliminating symptoms but i'd rather eliminate the symptoms by getting to the root cause of it Mm -hmm. and the thing that i noticed with cannabis is that it's a trap people go to it and they they're just relying on it forever they never get past it so that isn't necessarily helping people to heal there's there's other medicines that are being used in like the psycho psychotherapy world now like psilocybin dma ketamine lsd yep lsd they these are known to really burn through magnesium and be very depleting. Now, I think the problem is that there's probably a thousand studies on how magnesium and mental health <laughs> are related. Mm-hmm. That if, if psychotherapists switched frames and said, well, let's just help remineralize people and get the magnesium in, they might see that depression, anxiety just resolve, you know, a lot of the symptoms that way from a mineral perspective, but it's too complicated. They'd rather just, you know, give this medication and do a couple sessions. And I, I have a fear about this too, because most people that are seeking this kind of work, they need this kind of therapy. They're already minerally deficient, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of people. And then they're not being supported by the practitioners in ensuring that they don't they don't end up further depleted by the process. And so I think there's just an education piece that's missing. And that education piece is something that I'm trying to, you know, trying to get out there. And so I have been talking to some psychotherapists and about this, and they're very interested in, in understanding how minerals play into it. But for me, I view it as mental health and Emotional health, they're inseparable from physical health, that they're all related. And what we think of as depression, depression has been given, this is another label that they give to people. It's a a loss of energy Mm. on the physical level. They don't have any energy. Their mitochondria are not making any energy. And so it's an energy deficit and you get all the symptoms of depression. You can't get out of bed there's no motivation, you're sad. And when people start to get more energy on the mitochondrial basis, a lot of that just goes away, you know? Yeah. And and so it's very interesting. The, I think that it's just to, to touch on the, the, the piece about this isn't the way that the medicines have been used or there's, there's cultural differences in some of these medicines uh, between us as Westerners and the indigenous people that had them. And I have experience with a medicine called ayahuasca. Now this one isn't becoming legal anytime soon because it's kind of unmanageable from a therapeutic perspective. They don't like it because it's too unpredictable, but that isn't to say that a lot of people aren't working with it. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the indigenous people that work with that medicine and I've spent time with them, they are not in the same physical health that we're in. 
first of all, they don't have depression. They don't have a word for depression. They don't understand stress either. Like in some of the languages of the jungle, the stress, trying to translate the word stress into their language is a real problem because there's no concept of what stress is. It's like, oh, like physical, like you were beat up. You know, that's like kind of how they'd react. No, it's not like that. Oh, what are you talking about? Oh, like you had to carry something heavy. It's like, no, it's not like that. <laughs> Emotionally, maybe. <laughs> yes, because they, from emotional perspective, they don't suffer it. So it's like trying to explain something that doesn't exist. That just gives you an insight into where they're at. They're not burning through their minerals in the same way. And their diet is very different and their bodies are very different. So I think they can work with these very intense plant medicines and not suffer consequences. But then Westerners who, like I mentioned, a lot of us are already super depleted and we've had a lifetime of stress. <laughs> and, and then you go and you work in these traditions and these traditions put you on a strict diet where you eliminate all kinds of things. And people wonder why a month or two later, they feel worse than before they started. And I think that's, that's something that I've seen already in the psychedelic therapy world is that people feel good for a little bit afterwards, and then they feel worse than when they began. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that, I don't know that there's, there's any movement towards education on the mineral aspect. And that's sort of where I, I, I started to speak out about this, just trying to get some conversations going. I think it's incredibly helpful and so relevant and you know, one thing that I thought that I would find in school, which I didn't, was I thought, oh, well, I'm studying psychology and I'm going to get a more holistic view of health. I kind of haven't. It's still highly medicalized. Um, it's been a challenge actually being in school and knowing that there's more, but there's still this like, you know, we're, we're beholden to evidence-based you know, right at the altar of evidence-based and not that there shouldn't be checks and balances, but there's all these other things um, that could be helpful. And I guess psychedelics is one of those things, but it's like, yeah, but when that becomes mainstream, I have a problem with it because we know actually through studies, like drugs shrink your brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, you know, back in the fifties, the fifties, early sixties, there were lots of studies done with LSD. This is before all these drugs were criminalized. And there's a lot of history of psychotherapists using LSD back then. But the thing I try to point out to people is that that was before they doubled the iron fortification. That was before the, the diets of people were, were shifted. I mean, people today are in such a different state of health. So I think we need to just we have to do completely new studies. Mm. People are trying to rely on old studies, but it's with a population of people that didn't suffer the same metabolic issues that we have today. So while I'm, I'm confident that there's some benefit that can be had from working with these medicines and in, in a correct way, I don't know that we know based on our current population, exactly how it's going to play out. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm with you too. There's certain circumstances too when you think about um uh I don't know if you know too much about made medical assistance and dying. Um and they're bringing 
legislation to include mental illness into criteria to be eligible for medical assistance and dying or assisted suicide, physician assisted suicide. And if someone, you know, if they have untreatable or, you know, drug resistant depression and they could get some relief with psychedelics that could, you know, stop them from going down that road. Would we use that? And I think the answer is absolutely. You would, you would want to try whatever you could, right? There's a time and a place, but like you said, you can get trapped really easily in it. And especially with like microdosing, um, I think, oh yeah, I, I find I'm just a little bit worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's well, I, you know, again, from my, my perspective, just looking from the minerals, it's, I get concerned about people engaging in activities that are further depleting themselves. Yeah. And we talked about you, you asked me before, what are the things that deplete minerals? And I neglected to say it because I hesitate to say it, but most prescription medications that people are on are, and especially those that alter brain chemistry, the, the antidepressants, they're devastating. Antibiotics are also incredibly devastating on minerals and antibiotics are given out like candy. A lot of people, like I mentioned, they'll tell me when I say, when did your symptoms arise? And they'll tell me they had a stress and then I'll say, okay, well, what, what, what were the symptoms? Usually it's like, oh, I was, I had a kidney infection or, and then what did they do? Oh, give me antibiotics. And then it starts, you know, a lot of times with lots of antibiotics, I've noticed people taking antibiotics for years, which chelates copper. It just destroys your copper. And so then it, you start to see that a lot of what's happening in the psychedelic world with these are like medications is they're doing the same thing as the other medications. They're further depleting people. So we need to also just be aware that every substance we put in the body has a consequence, which is why I'm more of a fan of uh, modalities that don't involve altering our chemistry in that way. Like meditation, you mentioned meditation is incredibly beneficial. And I, I've looked at the research too, and you can basically take meditation next to psychedelic um, assisted therapy. And the benefits are all the same neuroplasticity, depression, anxiety relief, yep. but without the side effects. Yeah. So, you know, I'd rather teach people that if I could It'd be healthier for them. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I always like to finish each podcast with a couple of fun questions, some rapid fire, fun questions. Um, so you're going to be the recipient of those questions now. All right. Okay. If you're stranded on a desert Island and could only pick one food to eat for the rest of your life, regardless of like nutrient profile, if it was just solely based off pleasure, what would it be? Uh, barbecue ribs. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Amazing. What is the best meal you've ever eaten in your entire life? Um, I still think fondly about some of the meals my grandma made me when I was younger, cause she was one of the best cooks. So like Wiener schnitzel, like Hungarian food with cream spinach. And she made like goulash and all these things. I just, yeah, I, I would love to have another meal like that one day. 
Amazing. Yeah, that was totally my jam too. Although mine was more the, the chicken schnitzel. Yeah, well, she she made schnitzel, but she made it with pork. Now I realize that's I when I make schnitzel, I made it with chicken because yeah. I thought, oh, it's better for me. Now I'm going to probably go back and try to do what my grandma did. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Oh, yeah. What's your least favorite food? My least favorite food? Um, mushrooms. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I'm not a fan of mushrooms. Don't like them. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> what is your favorite restaurant? Ooh, that's a good one. Hmm. Well, I live in Arizona and we don't have great restaurants here, mm. believe it or not. My favorite restaurant for a long time was a place called Hero Zen in LA when I lived there. And it was a Japanese sushi place. And they flew the fish in like overnight you know, from Japan, all kinds of fish I never heard about. And I, I still think that was probably my favorite restaurant of all time. Amazing. What's your favorite travel destination you've been to? Ooh, that's good. It's kind of a toss up between the Andes Mountains of Peru, which I love, and Bali <laughs> in Indonesia. Yeah. I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Bali. There's not anything bad to say <laughs> other than it's too far away and we don't live there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your favorite books? Oh, well, I consume at least two books a month. So I have so many, some of the ones that I like the most, let's see. There's a book called Heal Your Wounds, Find Your True Self by Lise Bourbeau. And I think that's one of my favorite simple self-help books of all time. Mm. Um, in the realm of spirituality, my favorite book is called Old Path, White Clouds. And it's just the life of the Buddha, which I found really, really helpful for me at a certain time in my life. Wonderful. What are some of your non-negotiable health practices? Well, I, I spend most of my time on self-care. So this will be a long list. <laughs> I don't use an alarm clock to wake up. Amazing. Non-negotiable for me. Um, I need access to the sun every day or at least every week. Um, and nature. Most of my health stuff is just sun, good sleep, good water. These are non-negotiables for me. I used to say good air, but the air is getting worse and worse where I live. So mm. that one I've sort of already negotiated out by just by living here. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, just basics like that. What do you do for water when you say good water? Like, do you have a filtration system that you've installed? What, what do you do for water? Well, I live in the country, so I have a well um, and I've had my well tested. We don't have, it's really good quality. I do put my water through a filter and a softener. First a softener, then a filter, because we have very hard water here. That I think is the best solution I found for where I live. I mean, most people are drinking municipal water. They're going to have to do some serious filtration, but then it's also 
the thing about our water that people don't realize is that it's just, it needs to be living. It needs to be alive in a certain way. So water isn't really healthy unless it's flowing or I like to stir my water and put it mm. in the refrigerator and make it cold because when we go out and we drink out of a stream, you know, it's cold. There's something about the temperature that changes the consistency of the water too. Um, so just taking care to make sure the water is, isn't like sitting in the wrong types of containers, you know, and yeah. 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 What is the happiest moment of your life? <laughs> the happiest moment of my life. Yeah. I don't know that I can pinpoint one moment. There, there's so many happy moments. Um, I can remember some good ones. One was when I bought this house that I'm in, when I found it, the day that I found it. That was one of the happiest days of my life because I love this place. And I have some memories with, you know, close loved ones, you know, being in certain places. I won't get into too many details, but some of those moments are incredibly happy for me. Wonderful. And what advice would you like to leave our listeners with in regard to their health? Well, I would say that the body has so much intelligence. Sometimes when we try to compare our mental intelligence to the body's intelligence, this is where we get into trouble. Mm. We have to understand that we actually grew ourselves out of two cells. You know, you were two cells, your father and your mother, and you grew your body. And when people realize that they grew their body, nobody else did it. You did it maybe you can start to tap into that sense that your body is a miracle and really feel, wow, there's an intelligence there. Our body is so wise. And then we think some book was written or this and that. Uh, just understand that we don't have a clue as to how the body's working. I know that mother nature, or if you believe in higher power, they, they have a clue. But for me, it's just sort of understanding that the body is a miracle and our health is just a reflection of our environment, usually our mental environment, our emotional environment. And, and the physical body is made up of all the minerals of the earth. And we need to make sure that we're getting all of them in the right amounts in the right forms. Wonderful. And so you do work with clients, correct? Yes, I do. I do one-on-one -on -one consulting with people uh, using the root cause protocol. I'm one of their, their, certified consultants. So I do that. Yeah. Wonderful. And where can people find you? The best place would be mineralshaman.com. That's kind of my mineral website, um, has information about how to get in touch on Instagram. If they're on Instagram at mineral shaman. Yeah. You have a great Instagram, really, um, informational. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much Hamid for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure and you are just a wealth of knowledge. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave me a review as your reviews get this message of better health out there. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lena Jade's Healthy Life, where I post fitness, nutrition, and psychology content pretty much every day. 
All right, you guys, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. And as you go throughout your day, always remember, you are powerful over your health.